If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, how very eternally thankful we are that as children of wrath, that by your sheer mercy and grace you awaken dead hearts, that we might understand the gospel and then choose to believe. Thank you for your incredible mercy that you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, that nothing can separate us from this love, that no one can bring a charge against us, that you that began this work, you promised to complete it. And so we rest in this eternal grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. We're coming now, Father, to your word that you gave by the Spirit, for you said all Scripture is inspired by you. It's God-breathed, and so help us today with the Spirit's help to understand what we're reading so that we might apply it, that you might continue the process of shaping us and molding us into your image. I thank you, Father, that in weakness you give us strength. And so we come in weakness, and I come in weakness, and ask you to fill me and anoint me and use me today, that whoever might hear this message, that the lost might be saved and the saved might be edified. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take God's Word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 14. You can see the title of this morning's message is God's Army with the Lamb. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church has been removed, a seven-year period like the earth has never seen before will begin to unfold. And chapters 6 through 18 are really giving us a graphic picture of what that will look like. It is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that when I speak about it, you might think I would be exaggerating except for the fact that you can read the print on the page before you. In fact, in speaking of this coming day, Jesus said, for, since, for then there will be great tribulations such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Now, Jesus is truth incarnate. He never, ever, ever even exaggerated. And I've told you, when you think about this prophecy that he makes and what we read here in the Revelation, that when you consider all of the holocausts and famines and diseases and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all the atrocities that have been committed since the time of Adam and Eve, you take it and you put it all together, and it doesn't even begin to compare to the day that's before humanity. 
And so what we started back in chapter 6 all the way until we come to the 19th chapter is a time of unspeakable horror. Now, for the benefit of those with us for the first time, and because I want the rest of us to be able to think our way all the way through Revelation by the time we're done, because then it's a tool in your hand that will change your life and allow you to impact others, let's just set the context for the 14th chapter. Remember, God gave an outline for the book of Revelation. He doesn't do that for every book, but He did for this book. It's found in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write the things which you have seen. That's the past. That's chapter 1 of the glorified Christ. Write the things that are. That's the present. That's the seven churches that he describes. And then the things which will take place after these things. That's the future. So chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22, is the futuristic section of the Revelation. The things that will take place after these things. And he says it not once but twice in chapter four in verse one, signaling you that you are entering into new territory, that you are opening the after these things section of the book. And we saw there that open door, a picture of the church that has been raptured. And we find 24 elders, a representative number of the body of Christ. There are three visions of the throne room of God found in the Bible in Isaiah, Daniel, and here in Revelation. And they're identical with one exception. The one exception is here we find the 24 elders because the church has been caught up and they are there in the presence of the Lord. So beginning in chapter 6, as these judgments unfold, things become dark very, very fast. Now, to understand the revelation, you have to understand its structure. If you don't understand its architecture, it becomes very confusing. And we've seen that there are sealed, trumpet, and bold judgments that all come in, in series of seven. There is a series of septets, so, so to speak. And so, for example, the uh, trumpets, because they happen in consecutive order, cannot happen until the seals are finished. And so this first slide shows the seven seal judgments. Unlike the trumpets and the bold judgments that are visible all at once, the seal judgments, as we studied, can be seen only one at a time. The first four seals represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal represents all those saints who are martyred by a hateful world because they bow and worship Jesus. The sixth seal describes some cosmic disturbances, and there's a number of those all the way through the Revelation. And with each set of seven, between number six and seven, whether it's seal, trumpet, or bulls, there is some intervening space, not time, but space, to help us to see what has been happening. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, when these seal judgments are going on on the earth, what else is going on? Well, you don't have to wonder, because God tells us. And one of the things He tells us between the sixth and the seventh seal are of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we'll meet again today. Now, in the seventh seal, it's contained seven trumpets, as this next slide shows. And so, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is again a space of time, chapters 10 through 14. Not time in terms of uh, literal time, but times in terms of you're having a chance to catch your breath, to reflect. And in each parenthetical section, he's either looking back and describing what has been happening, or he's looking ahead to what is about to happen. Now, of course, when the seventh seal is open, it 
opens the trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see all the bowls. So when the seventh seal is open, you can see the rest of the program. And as we saw, something happens in heaven that is astounding. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. People just have literally their breath taken away. And so now between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there is this pause of time where God gives some intervening chapters. The trumpets are found in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 10, we studied the angel in the little book. In chapter 11, we studied the two witnesses. And then in 11.15, you'd think the book would be about to end when he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And yet the second coming isn't recorded until you come to the 19th chapter. And so obviously between 11.15 and chapter 19, there's a lot of things that still yet to happen. And just like there was an intervening chapter between the 6th and 7th seal, there's intervening chapters between the 6th and 7th trumpet. That's chapters 10 to 14. Chapter 15, the shortest chapter in the whole book, is connected to the 16th chapter. It introduces to us the bold judgments. And of course, the trigger that brings the 30 minutes of silence in heaven is an event called the abomination of desolation. It happens right in the middle of this seven-year period. And so, again, you've got this space of time, and He is going to introduce us in these this double parenthesis of sorts, not only to what has been happening, but to some key players. And when we come to the 14th chapter, he's going to preview an event that is still in the future that will bring us all the way to the second coming. So here's the bowls of wrath in the next slide. Again, there are six bowls, and then there is a space of time that's recorded for us in chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. And when you read those verses, it takes you all the way to the battle of Armageddon. So that's kind of the structure. And the intensity of these judgments increase, just like Jesus said. The Olivet Discourse perfectly parallels these three sets of seven. The first six seals, uh, really the seventh, are described in chapter 24 all the way to the abomination of desolation in verse 15 of Matthew 24. And when that event happens, that's when the trumpet and the seal judgments begin to take place. So here, putting it all together in this next slide, uh, just again so you have the big picture, the rapture takes place, uh, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy which is described by Daniel as seven years, described by John as seven years, is divided into two halves, as Jesus taught, as Paul taught. And it's two halves of three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days long. In the first half, Israel is protected by this false Christ, but then he commits something in that temple that we studied last time where there is an act of idolatry and they know it's impossible 
for him to be the promised Messiah. And then he begins to uh, persecute Israel. So seven seals and the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls of wrath that ushers in the battle of Armageddon, concluding with Christ's return. Now that's the structure. That's where we are at. So we're in one of those intervening sections that is not only reviewing, but giving us a preview of things to come. With that said, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 14, beginning now in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of thunder. And the voice which I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So again, we are introduced to this group known as the 144,000. They are an army of evangelists, and there are three truths that I want us to observe so that we can make application today in our own lives. First, I want you to see that these 144,000 represent God's rescued army. They are a picture of a rescued army of evangelists. Again, verse 1 begins, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000. Here are these men, and notice they are with the Lamb. Now, we've seen it. It's an, it's an important principle that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so much of the revelation, if we will just keep reading, will interpret itself for us, sometimes a verse or a paragraph that follows, sometimes a chapter that follows. Or, since there are some 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses found in this book, it's understood through our knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, John is unique. He's the only writer in the New Testament who refers to the Lord Jesus as the Lamb. In fact, some 30 times in the book of Revelation, he calls the Lord Jesus the Lamb. When he quotes John the Baptist, that concept is uh, underscored for us, where in that day Jesus came down to the Jordan River, and John, the forerunner of the Messiah, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we're not surprised that he has given that title because it comes right from the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah said he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The 53rd chapter in Hebrew is in what we call a prophetic past tense, where if you wanted to underscore a truth as if it had already happened and is so certain to happen, you put it in a prophetic past. So all the way through that chapter, it's like it's already happened. And he's describing the coming of the Messiah who would not open his mouth. And so before Pilate, before Herod, he kept silent when it came to defending his innocence. Why? That he might not be found innocent, 
that he would be condemned, that you and I could be found innocent. And so central to the revelation is this understanding of the Lamb and His cross. And at the heart of this text says, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. So you have 144,000 men with Jesus on Mount Zion. Now, wait a minute. The second coming doesn't happen until the 19th chapter. Remember, in each of these intervening chapters, he's either reviewing what has been taking place or introducing us to some key characters or, as in this case, giving us a preview as to what is going to happen. Jesus is going to come back to Mount Zion, and he will stand there with these 144,000 people. So with that said, it's important we understand what does he mean by Mount Zion. Now remember, the next great event is the rapture of the church. And it's a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made in John 14. If you remember, after Judas had left, the son of perdition, only the Antichrist and Judas are given the designation son of perdition. After he is gone and there's only believers present, Jesus reminds them, in my father's house are many places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus first comes for us. He receives us to himself, that where he is, namely in heaven, we might be as well. We call that the catching up, the harpazo, the rapto in the Latin Bible, and so we speak of the rapture of the church. That is a distinctly different event from what takes place seven plus years later at the second coming. Now remember, every prophecy for the first coming was literally actually fulfilled. And for someone to spiritualize the prophecies for the second coming, they're defying what God did when he brought Jesus into the world the first time, and they're ignoring how the apostles and Jesus interpreted the Bible. In Zechariah 14, speaking of the return, the second coming of the Messiah, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the mountain, if you remember, he ascended to heaven from. He will come back and stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Has that ever happened? No. Is it going to happen? You better believe it. In fact, God says when he splits that mountain, he's going to walk through, Ezekiel said, the eastern gate. He's going to go on top of the temple mount, and he's going to judge those who survived the great tribulation period. And he will shortly then begin his reign on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we are commanded to pray. Your will be done on earth, literally, as it is to be done in heaven. Now, we want to see that today, but the fulfillment contextually of that prayer is when Jesus comes back and he literally rules and reigns for a thousand years. And so we'll learn here in chapters 14 and 15 that the apostle John is going to do something that he has already done. He's going to give us an overview and a preview. Here he is giving us a preview of things to come. Jesus is there on top of Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? It's used over 150 times in the Bible. So it's important when you hear the words Mount Zion, 
you know what God is referring to. And it's used in three principal ways, and the context determines what God is referring to. The word Zion is a Hebrew word that literally means fortification. And the very fortification, the first time it's used is in 2 Samuel 5. Let me read it to you. It says, under God's command, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So God commanded David, go and conquer those Jebusites and take the city. Now, the Jebusites were wicked people, and God's patience had run out, and he commanded David to go and to conquer that people. Now, by the way, the city of David is used in the Bible to refer to two places. One, the place where David and the Lord Jesus would be born. The Scripture says that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, and that he would be born in a little place known as the house of bread, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so Bethlehem, where he is born, is called the city of David. And David, who conquers the Jebusite city, then calls Jerusalem the city of David. Now, Joseph Smith wasn't that bright a guy. He's a false prophet. He was as wicked and as moral as he could be. And a lot of the Mormons are now coming to realize that he actually had 44 wives, well-documented. In either case, because he didn't read the Scripture clearly, this guy who gave us the Book of Mormon, he said the angel moron, or maybe it's Moroni, uh, you know, told him what to write through these magical spectacles. But in the book of Alma, the seventh chapter, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Again, he was confusing Bethlehem as the city of David and Jerusalem as the city of David. Jesus was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. Listen, the Bible and the Book of Mormon cannot both be right. One is in error, the other is true. Now, here's a picture of the city of David, what it would have looked like in David's day. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you discover that this whole section was found some years ago, and they've been excavating it. There are certain sections you can walk through. One of the sections that you can walk through is called a water shaft in which David brought his troops up through in order to do a surprise attack on the city of Jerusalem. The very water shaft that's described in Scripture, you can see when you go there. And so here was David, and he established his city. Uh, Up above the city, north of the city, is what we call the Temple Mount today. Now, remember, here was uh, David. He built this city. And at one point, if you remember, he did something that God was displeased with. He counted the troops. And in counting the troops, he was assessing his own strength, and he was putting his confidence in the arm of the flesh instead of the arm of the Lord. And so if you remember, God sent a, a, a plague on the people. And so David repented and sought God, and God said, well, you can stop the plague if you will sacrifice to me. And so right above this picture in that mountainous zone is the threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna was a Jebusite. Not all the Jebusites were wicked. He was one Jebusite that came as a proselyte and believed in the God of Israel as the one true God. And so if you remember, he sacrificed there up on the threshing floor, a high place where you would throw the wheat and it would be separated in the wind. 
And it was the same place that Solomon later built the temple. How do I know? Second Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the fleshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And by the way, this is the same area in which Abraham took Isaac and offered him or attempted to offer him as a sacrifice before God. So Solomon builds the temple up on the top of that threshing floor. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 48, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so again, in this picture, it's built on the south side of the city. If you go north, you find yourself up on top of Mount Mount Zion, so to speak. Now, if you go there today, it will look more like this. Um, As the next picture shows, uh, the next slide, please, somewhere, there we go. Um, It's uh, the city of David. You can see the arrow. It's south of the Temple Mount platform. The wall that's here on the right side and all the way down to the far right, lined up with the area to the right of the Temple of the Dome, is the Eastern Gate. So when Messiah comes back, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split it in two. He's going to go through that eastern gate, and he'll go up on top of this temple mount. You say, how did it get so flat? It was mountainous, was it not, in Abraham's day? Yes, it was. But if you remember, there was a fellow by the name of King Herod, and through a series of arches and a lot of soil, he flattened the whole thing. And of course, today it's all concrete. Now, Herod didn't do the concrete. Concrete came into existence in 1824. You say, how do you know that? Because I had a friend who ran a concrete country company. He owned it, and he said, that's when they invented it, 1824. That's just a little trivia for you. In either case, it's totally flat today. And so that was the place, the threshing floor of Aruna, where David sacrificed. That was the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. That was the place where Solomon built the temple. And if you went even a little bit further north, and if you had a little GPS in your hand, the actual peak of Mount Moriah is a place today we call Golgotha where Jesus died. This imagery is not by accident. It's all by providence where God was unfolding His plan. So here's the Lord Jesus. And by the way, this is an important piece of property. It's the most disputed 35 acres in the world. There's over a billion Muslims who want full control over this Temple Mount. So Mount Zion, when you see the word in the Bible, let the context determine. It's either referring to the city of Jerusalem as a whole, or sometimes it's referring to the whole land of Israel on a few occasions. Most often it's referring to this region we call the Temple Mount, or it can also be used to refer to the heavenly Jerusalem in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So people, your loved ones who are in heaven today, they're in the new Jerusalem. They are in the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, I've told you there are some Christians who want to spiritualize the book of Revelation, with the exception of the 19th chapter where Jesus comes again. They say all of Revelation is history. But we have no right to manipulate 
God's Word like that because we want to bring some anti-Semitic view against Israel, and we want to make the church the new Israel. We have no freedom to do that, and the text doesn't allow us to do that. Here are these 144,000 who are with the Lamb, namely Jesus, and they are standing on top of Mount Zion. And the text says they heard a voice from heaven, which means, of course, they are on earth. Again, the prophet said, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He'll split it in two. And the Bible says when he does that, there'll be living water that will flow out of that ditch all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, if you go to the Dead Sea, it's the deadest body of water in the world. There's not the smallest microcosm of life in it. Nothing lives in it. And if you remember, when God rained fire and brimstone on those five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, they all were along the Dead Sea. And no doubt when rain and floods and all of that came over what God brought down, and that sulfur into the Dead Sea, that's what killed it. In either case, this is a real place that the Lamb is standing on. Now, a couple of things that I want you to note that takes place here. First, God's army is divinely protected. It's divinely protected. Again, in verse 1, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000. Now, do you remember these people? It's been months since we're in chapter 7. It's taken us a long time to get here. So turn back to the left in your Bibles to chapter 7, would you? Revelation chapter 7. And let's just refresh our mind with who these 144,000 are. In Revelation 7 and verse 1, in this intervening chapter between the 6th and 7th seals, we read, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, We talked about that, that it does not mean the world is flat, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this is the same group that are found here in the beginning of the tribulation that we're meeting today in chapter 14. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, we've seen already that one of the purposes of this seven-year period is to bring people to Jesus, people who have never heard the gospel in power and clarity will have an opportunity during this time, and it's going to happen through this army of evangelists, 144,000. Now, this is an abused verse. If you remember, Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, said that the 144,000 represent her denomination. Well, they ran into a problem because there came a point when the Seventh-day Adventists grew over 144,000. And so then they said, well, we never really meant it as a literal number, but if you read their literature careful, carefully, that's exactly how she meant it. In either case, you dig a little bit deeper, and their point is, is that the 144,000 today are symbolic of every Seventh-day Adventist because they worship on Saturday, and all the Sunday worshipers are basically 
taking the mark of the beast. So they spiritualize a lot of it. Now, even worse than they are a group known as the Jehovah's Witness. I hope you know Jehovah's Witness are not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the absolute authority of the Bible. They trust only the New World Translation written by a group of men who knew none of the original languages. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny salvation by grace alone. They're a cult just like the Mormons are. Now, they originally taught that only 144,000 people would ever be saved. Ooh, big problem. They, too, grew past 144,000. They didn't want to keep all these financial givers away, so they restructured their doctrine. And so they took a verse, much like the Mormons do, totally out of context, John 10, 16, where Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so this slide illustrates how they handle the problem. They say there are two different saved groups of God's people. There's the anointed class, that's 144,000. Then there's the other sheep, and these two groups have two different destinies. The anointed class is made up of 144,000 Jehovah's Witness, and they enjoy a spiritual existence in heaven, and they rule with Christ, and, and that, that group was shut off in 1935. And so the other sheep refer to the rest of the Jehovah's Witness who will live forever in an earthly paradise, and they'll be ruled over by the 144,000 elite so-called believers of JWs and Jesus. Now, look, whatever you do with Revelation 7 or Revelation 14, you can't do that. You have to ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. We're told here in Revelation 7 and verse 4 that these men are from every tribe of the sons of God. And just so we wouldn't miss it, beginning in the next verse, for the next several verses, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, and he lists all 12 tribes. The list refers to literal, actual Jews who are the sons of Israel who are going to preach the gospel during this time after the church is removed. By the way, this totally also gets rid of another heresy where British Israelism taught there's 10 lost tribes in Israel. British Israelism was started by some rich white Anglo-Saxon people who didn't like Jewish people. So they created a doctrine and they said the Brits now represent as the new Israel and these 10 lost tribes, the people of God. Now we haven't seen a queen installed in a long time because the one we have, who I think is a believer, has been there a long time, but they have this rock and they say that was Jacob's rock and that was the rock he laid his head on. Now I don't like a rock for a pillow. I like my pillows soft. I don't know about you, Anthony, but they got this rock and there's coming a day when they're going to take that rock out again and they're going to put the crown on it and install the next queen or king or whatever it's going to be. Here's the point. There are no lost tribes. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent the his disciples out to the lost tribes of the, to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. He knew where they were, and if they were lost, that's news to Jesus. 
Not to mention, he says that someday the apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten are not lost. And if you've read the book of James, they weren't lost in his mind in the first century when he penned that book because in the opening verse, he writes to the 12 tribes. Paul, before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, speaks of the 12 tribes. Anna, on the presentation of Christ in the temple, Remember, she is from the tribe of Asher, which is one of these ten tribes. So if they're lost, they're not lost to God because God does not lose things. Now, these 144,000 Jewish men are going to play a critical role because what are they going to accomplish? Look at verses 9 and 10. And And after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know how these 144,000 are going to be saved. God doesn't show us that. Maybe they'll have a Damascus Road kind of experience. Maybe they'll just be good Orthodox Jews that represent about 35% of the population today in Israel who have been studying the Scriptures, and God will lift the blinders, and they'll realize that Yeshua is Lord. All these evangelicals who've tried to witness to them, they're going to see it's true what they said. I don't know how God is going to do it, but there's going to be 144,000 of them, and God's going to let them preach the gospel, and they are going to fulfill the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go out to the whole world, and then the end shall come. When is that prophecy going to be fulfilled? Well, in the context of Matthew 24, in this final seven-year period. And that's what this text is reminding us. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, look, we just, by God's grace, put some Old Testament books in the hands of the Bakuna. The New Testament, through your generosity, is being translated. But don't think for a skinny moment that if we get this people group and that people group, which we should, and get a translation in their Bible, uh, the translation of the Bible in their language, that that's going to usher in the second coming. No, 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 no. This prophecy will be fulfilled during this final time frame in human history. And why is God going to fulfill it? Because He loves the lost. It is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, why does Community Bible Church exist? What does God have for us Number one, we exist to edify the Savior, to exalt the Savior. We are to glorify Jesus. Number two, we exist to edify the saints so that you can grow, not on my opinion, but what the Word of God says, because that's the living Word that will change your life. That's why you need a Bible in this church. And number three, we exist to evangelize the lost. We're here to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. Can you say amen to that? That's what we are about. That's what we are to be about. Why? Because God cares, among other things, for lost people. And the Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heartbeat of what is being said. After these things, I looked and I saw a great multitude. Now, the truth revealed in verse 9 is that after Christ comes for His church, 
There is going to be a great multitude of people who are pictured here in heaven. Why are they in heaven already? Well, if you remember back in the sealed judgments, and he's taking us back, and he's reviewing what has been happening, all of these people who are coming to know Jesus during the tribulation are being martyred. They're either being starved to death because they can't buy or sell anything, or they get their heads cut off during this seven-year period. And they're in heaven. They're rejoicing in the great salvation in which they have. And they're referred to in the Bible as saints. These are not church saints. Remember, there are three categories of saints, of set-apart ones in the Bible. There are Old Testament saints. And so the psalmist says, fear the Lord, you his saints. In Acts 9, there are church saints. And Ananias says to the Lord, you know, Lord, he's the one, Saul of Tarsus, who wants to harm your saints. And then there are these tribulation saints. And Revelation 13 and verse 7 speaks of the Antichrist who wants to make war with the saints of God. But these are set-apart people. They have been declared righteous on the basis of grace. Now, people sometimes ask me, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. How is it that people can even get saved during the time of the Great Tribulation if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? Well, the answer is, is that He is removed from the world in the same sense in which He came on Pentecost. He's removed from the world in the sense that the church is gone, we who are the temple of the living God. But that does not mean he stops working in the hearts of lost people. Just as he worked before Christ came, he will work during this period of time as well, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now think about it. Here's this great multitude from every tribe, people, and tongue. How is that going to happen? I don't know. Maybe they'll preach and they'll be able to speak every language and tongue around the world. But all I know is every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be able to understand and to believe the gospel. And there'll be representatives from every group, a great multitude that no one could count. Now think about that. On Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. A few short days later, 5,000 men, excluding women and children. And then the Scripture says God was adding daily to their number, day by day. But on this time, millions upon millions of people, John Wesley, the great Anglican pastor who came to our country, rode up and down the coast on a horse preaching the gospel, first came here, of course, discovered he was lost trying to convert the Indians in Savannah. And on the boat trip back, realized he himself wasn't saved. But he came back and preached the gospel tirelessly. And he had a certain method to follow up new Christians just like we do. The discovery class, a 45-week course. It will ground you in your faith and solidify you so that you can walk with the Lord. And so many of his followers, because they were so methodical, it was almost a slur word, they were called Methodists. Well, Wesley used to say, give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the whole world for Christ. Well, listen, it's not 12 here. It's not Wesley's 100. It's 144,000 people who are going to preach the gospel. And notice what God says. They are divinely protected. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until they have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this seal is a mark of ownership, and this seal, in this case, is a mark of protection. And when they are sealed, no one can hurt them. 
Why does God not want them hurt? There's a lot of people martyred during this time, His people, because He wants one untiring, consistent voice preaching the gospel over and over. You take a gun, you shoot the fellow who's sealed, one of the hundred, you can't kill him. He's like Superman. The, the bullets just bounce off. I, I don't know if the gun jams or what God does, but you cannot kill these people. You say, I wish I had a seal like that. Well, in one sense you do. It's a little different. But we are sealed also. We are marked and owned by God. It's called the seal of the Spirit. In Ephesians 1, in Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, the death, burial, and the resurrection, that's the gospel. Having believed, you got to hear it before you can believe it. You are sealed in Him, in Jesus. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Some of your translations say a deposit. Another one says a first installment. The King James says as an earnest of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Listen, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit seals you. He is God's down payment, God's guarantee, God's earnest money, so to speak, that what He promised to do, He will complete. He is God's guarantee. And the opposite could be said of the unbeliever who does not have this seal and are not owned by the Lord. Paul says in Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. And so the same God and Father who sealed us and marks us as his children, seals and marks these 144,000. But they are protected in a unique way. Again, in verse 1, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, by the way, God protecting his own is not without precedent. Before the time of the great flood, God brought Noah and his family into the ark of safety before he flooded the world. Uh, when God came and uh, rains fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, he delivered Lot and his two daughters. When Jericho was conquered by Joshua, Rahab, the prostitute, because of her faith, was delivered. And in the same way, during the tribulation, these 144,000 will be delivered. And in some ways, you and I, if we've been saved, will be delivered even in a greater way. And that we won't be here for this time. God will take his church out. So this army is divinely protected. Notice also, they are divinely preserved. They're divinely preserved. Then I looked, and the lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now remember, the Lord God, Jesus, is on God's holy mountain. He's on top of Mount Zion. He has 144,000 men who have an outward visible sign. We're told they have his name, meaning the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, and they have the name of his Father written on their foreheads. These men are called out. They are separated. Not only are they owned by God, they are sovereignly protected by God. Notice the number. This is, towards the, this is the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is over. He's given us a preview of the second coming. Jesus has come back. He's on top of the temple mount. At the beginning of the tribulation, God called out the 144,000. Now we're at the end of it. And there's not 143,000. There's not 143,999. 
there's 144,000 protected preachers because God has protected them. Okay, that's God's rescued army. Secondly, let's think for a moment about God's rejoicing army. God's rejoicing army. Notice first that God's army rejoices in a new setting, in a new setting. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, as we witness in chapters 4 and 5 of the Revelation, among other things, heaven is filled with the praises and the worship of God's people. And so the voice they hear from heaven is described like the sound of many waters, like an unbroken unity. My wife and I, with our grandchildren while on vacation, we, we stood behind a waterfall, and there was this powerful waterfall, and you could stand right behind it and almost see through it, and it was just unbroken noise that came down. That's the picture here, like the sound of many waters, like one large unified voice. Also, it's described like the sound of thunder. That means it's not dead, it's full, it's full of volume. And notice also this voice is described like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So it's not just loud, it's sweet, it's pleasant, it's soothing. And this is a picture, remember, they're on the earth and they're hearing this music from heaven. Who's there? We are, the church who's been raptured. We're one body, we're one people, though many members, and there's one unified verse, one voice, one voice. Look at verse 3. They're referred to as they. You might want to circle the word voice in verse 2, the word voice in verse 2, and then draw an arrow to the pronoun they in verse 3. Now, these 144,000, it's the end of the tribulation. They've been rescued from that time period. They've witnessed for seven years death and destruction on an unprecedented level. They've watched the world turn its back on God's Messiah and worship this false god. They've watched the world fall at the feet of the Antichrist and take his false seal. And they've viewed horrible judgments that have come out of heaven. But this verse finds them with the Lord Jesus on top of Mount Zion, and they are listening with their feet firmly planted on earth's foundation there on the top of the Temple Mount. They are listening to God's people sing in heaven. By the way, there's 144,000 of them with Jesus on that mount. At Ramadan, they had over 500,000 Muslims on top of that 40, 35-acre piece of property. So here they are. They're, they're listening to these voices from heaven, and it's magnificent. Now, remember, when sin entered into the world, our nature within fell and our bodies without fell. And so our voices are fallen voices, and some are more fallen than others, right, man? man that's, that's his job as a, as a choir director. He has to see who has the most fallen voice. Some of them have scratchy, tone-deaf, flat voices. But listen, it doesn't say your music has to be good, but you should sing it. You should belt it out. Belt it out for me when you sing. It'll make me that much happier when I go to heaven, okay? Listen, here are these people who've been through all of this pain and sorrow and tears, watching a fallen world come under the judgment of God, thanking and praising the Lord for those who are saved. 
But now they are having a choir practice of sorts. They are on the earth, and they're listening to this magnificent choir who's in heaven. So they rejoice in a new setting, but secondly, they rejoice with a new song. God's army rejoices with a new song. Now notice verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. He only identifies the choir here with the pronoun they, but the rest of the revelation, if you remember chapters 4 and 5, it's the redeemed church in heaven and this special class of angels called the four living creatures who are praising angels. And so while the heavenly choir sings this new song, 144,000 men there on the temple mount with Jesus on Mount Zion are learning a new song. And the text says that no one could learn the song except these 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. In other words, they were not earth dwellers like we've seen all the way through Revelation. These people who are this life only, who could care less about God. These are citizens of heaven. These are the redeemed people of God. And if only this army of evangelists can hear this song, there's an implication here that there are some present who cannot hear this song. Now, remember, The Lord is on Mount Zion with these people. Here's the Mount of Olives that he comes back on. He splits it in two. It opens up the eastern gate. He walks up on the Temple Mount. He's got 144,000 evangelists who've been preaching the gospel with him for seven years. This Kidron Valley that lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision. It's the same place. Now, if you go there today, here's a picture of it. Uh, between, uh, if you're on top of the Mount of Olives, and Mount Zion is where that gold dome is, that Muslim pagan structure of sorts, between the two is one of the largest graveyards in the world. And there are all these Jewish men and women who want to be buried there. Uh, some time ago, my wife and I were with our grandchildren there in Atlanta, and we took them to visit their our granddaughter's grave, Jane, and, and as we sat there on the ground, one of them said, now, granddaddy, where is Jane's head? Is it here where my feet is, or is it up here by the stone? I said, it's by the headstone. They wanted to know where her head was. I said, that's why we call it a headstone. So she's buried with her head there. Well, if you're on the Mount of Olives, and you look at this mass of graves, And if somehow you could take the lid off, now this is just a grave marker, they're buried six feet under, the head, if they sat up, would be facing that temple mount. Every Jew on that mountain is buried in such a way that if he were to sit up on that grave, he'd be looking straight at the temple mount. Why is that? Because they believe the prophecies of Scripture. They believe that that's where the Messiah is going to come because that's what God reveals in His Word. And they want to see the Messiah there standing on Mount Zion. Now remember, this is the Valley of Jehoshaphat called the Valley of Decision. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Listen to what God says in Joel 3. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. 
and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people in my heritage Israel. So remember, unless these days have been cut short, this these days of horrible tribulation, Jesus said no one would survive. So God puts an end to it. And there are people who are alive when Jesus comes, some who are living, born-again believers, tribulation saints, and other unbelievers. And God gathers them all, and He brings them into the Valley of Jehoshaphat, in what today we also call the Kidron Valley. And God says in Matthew 25 that He will judge them. He'll judge the nations on the basis of the way they treated Jerusalem. He said, I was in prison, you fed me. I was hungry, you, 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 know, you cared for me, and so forth. I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, referring to the Jewish people. Now, we apply it broadly today, but remember the context. He's talking about how the nations of the world are going to treat Israel. And all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel on that day. The only nations that won't are those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior. God will gather them away. Some will be left. The rest will be taken away in judgment. That's what the text says. It has nothing to do with the rapture as Hal Lindsey misinterpreted it some years ago. And those Jewish people are going to watch it all. Every Jewish believer who acknowledged in that day, many of them, these graves go back centuries. Some were looking forward to the Messiah. They didn't know his name would be Yeshua, but they believed God would send the Messiah, these Old Testament saints. Many will come to believe in Jesus, and they'll be part of those who are executed, and there'll be even more graves. But they will look at the Messiah there on top of the Temple Mount, and they're going to sing a new song. And they alone are qualified to sing this new song. Why? Because of the experience they had. Now, look, before I was saved... My heart was not filled with godly songs, but with the world's songs. I couldn't sing a godly song and really understand amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me because I hadn't been saved. But when God saved me, I understood what that song meant. And now I can sing about God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's sustaining grace and His blessings and His provisions. Well, these men are singing a new song that is unique to them because of the role that they played. And someday, you will sing a new, new song with these people. Look, the Scripture says, sing unto the Lord a new song. You notice how Matt often introduces us to new songs? Why does he do that? Well, among other things, the oldie goldies, while they may be great, God commands us to learn new songs. Nothing wrong with the old songs. They sang the Psalms over and over and over again in the Bible in their songbook. But there's also new songs, fresh songs that need to come from the heart. And someday I'll be able to sing a new, new song in my glorified body because now I see dimly. That day I'll sing very clearly face to face. Finally, there's beyond God's rescued army and God's rejoicing army, I want you to notice God's redeemed army. God's redeemed army and two characteristics are underscored here. First, the lifestyle of God's redeemed army is pure. We read here in verse 4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, the word chaste here is the Greek word parthenos. It's often translated virgins. And in some of your English Bibles, it says they have kept themselves virgins. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, the term virgin in the Bible can refer to a literal, actual virgin, like Christ would be born of a virgin. Um, That was a miracle birth. It was a virgin conception. Uh, Or it can refer sometimes to a spiritual virgin, or it can refer to both. Now, I need to say parenthetically that my dear Roman Catholic friends love to take Revelation 14.4, among other verses that they use, in order to advocate that to be in a preferred state of spirituality, you need to be a virgin in order to serve as a priest, a bishop, or a cardinal. Of course, history reveals that many of these, even popes, sired children, not to mention as the scandal continues to grow, many even red hats have raped little girls and boys. Now, we're going to study this church in the 17th chapter, and it's going to be chilling for some of you. But here these people are described as undefiled by women. Now, please understand God is not down in intimacy in the marriage relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, I wish all men were as I. He was single. Why? Because a single person can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. But God has not gifted most people in that way. He's called most people to be married. And so the assumption is, is that a man will leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. In fact, in describing intimacy, God doesn't describe that virginity as some greater form of purity in which to serve God in. For Paul writes, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So God did not create celibacy, so to speak, in order to give you a greater purity to serve God with. In fact, it has the potential for greater immorality once you're married if you deprive one another of a basic function God has written into your body. But please understand, God is not against marriage. And I suspect when we get to heaven, a lot of these 144,000 will have been married and have children. But understand, there's a contrast being made, and the contrast will become so plain when we come to the 17th chapter, because God is going to contrast the true church of God with the false church called the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 17, the false one world religion. And God often in Scripture compares spiritual unfaithfulness to adultery, just as He often in Scripture compares spiritual purity to a virgin. And so Paul is speaking of the virgin bride of Christ, to use his terminology. For instance, to use it as unfaithfulness, James will write, you adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, if you think that sin in this age, as bad as it is getting, is easy to get a hold of. If someone today wants to be immoral, it's a lot easier today to be immoral than it was 40 years ago. But I want to tell you, when the church is removed and the restraining influence of the Spirit is gone, 
It will be 10,000 times, 10,000 times easier to be immoral, to participate in all kinds of wickedness. The point of these 144,000 is not that they've been kept from marriage, but spiritually speaking, they are virgins, and spiritually speaking, they have been faithful to the Lord. How do I know that? Just read the rest of the verse. Let's keep reading. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. How so? These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These men are mocked by their loyalty to the Lamb. Furthermore, verse 4 says, these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, Moses wrote of a number of festivals that the Jewish people were to participate in, that they continue to participate in. And one is called the Feast of First Fruits. It's not by accident that Jesus literally died on Passover and he was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. At First Fruits, the people in anticipation and gratitude of the harvest that would come would bring a single stalk of grain and then they would bring a handful of grain and a picture of the harvest that was going to come. Jesus was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. He was the single stalk. But the Bible also unfolds in Matthew, unique there because it's written to Jewish people. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So in keeping with that theme of first fruits. God describes these 144,000 like first fruits. Why? Because after the church has gone, they're the first ones saved, and they are a picture of a harvest of millions of people that come to faith during this time. Remember, John said, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could count. Doesn't even try to count them. He just likens them to the sand of the seashore. These men are like first fruits. Now, in addition, not only is their lifestyle pure, the lifestyle of God's redeemed army is blameless. They are blameless. Notice how verse 5 begins. And no lie was found in their mouth. Some of your translations say no guile, no deceit, no falsehood. The Greek word is dolos. It's the word used outside of the Bible to describe a decoy. You know what a decoy is. We put some plastic ducks out in the marsh one day to float them out there to bring the real ducks in. They're fakes. They're phonies. A hypocrite is a decoy. These men are the real deal. They're not fakes. They didn't preach lies. No lie was found in their mouth. They were blameless, not sinless. They still have a fallen, sinful nature, but blameless. Paul can describe himself in Philippians not as sinless, but as blameless. In other words, there was no glaring fault, no big blemishes. These men knew the truth. They believed the truth. They lived the truth. They preached the truth. Now, how are we going to apply this passage today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, I want to ask by way of three questions First, are you standing in victory? Are you standing in victory? Now, when Jesus comes back and returns to the earth and stands on Mount Zion, he is standing there with 144,000. 
In the Greek New Testament, as seen in our English Bibles, standing is shared both by the Lord Jesus and by these 144,000. And they are victorious with our Savior. They are standing in victory. And our being able to stand in victory has been the subject of many hymns throughout the age of the church. In the 1800s, Dudley Ting would preach at the YMCA, the Young Men's Christians Association. Back then, it was a real Christian organization. And on one day, he preached to over 5,000 men. And on that morning meeting, over 1,000 young men gave their lives to Christ. After the morning meeting, being a farmer, he went back to his farm, and as they were shelling corn, he got a little too close to the machinery, and his coat got caught in it, and it took his arm off. And as he lay on the bed, bleeding out, dying, his father reminded him that there would be thousands there to, in that evening to listen to him preach, do you want me to tell them anything? He said, tell them to stand up for Jesus Christ. And so that evening, thousands came expecting him to preach. And it was announced that he had died that afternoon. But he said his last words were to you, stand up for Jesus Christ. George Duffield was present in that congregation. And he heard the evangelist's last words. And he went home that night and wrote this hymn that we often sing. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. This passage represents God's people in victory. And God wants you and I to walk in victory. And so I'm just asking you this morning, are you standing in victory? Number two, do you understand that you are secure in Christ? Revelation 14 here introduces us to the amazing truth of these servants who have been sealed of God. Here they are with the Lamb, sealed and forever secure with Him. You say, well, if I had a seal like that, it would be wonderful. Well, you do in one sense, as I've already underscored. Ephesians, we read it this morning, the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Very similar terminology is used by Paul when he writes to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, the Spirit is the one who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. You say, well, is it possible to break that seal, to lose the Spirit? Paul will say in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When the Spirit comes in you, He is sealed there, marking you, owning you for the time when Jesus comes back. In John, it should say the sixth chapter, the 37th verse, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the will of the Father who sent you, Lord Jesus? This is the will of him who sent me, that of all, everyone, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Understand, there is no leakage at all between those who believe and those who are raised up on the last day. In John 10, Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're one of Christ's sheep today, you have a proclivity to follow after him. And if you have no desire to follow after the things of God, you're either lost or you're grossly out of fellowship with God. 
And I give, we don't earn it, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you by His sovereign, unending, eternal grace. And here are these 144,000 saved and secure. And when you get sealed with God, you cannot break that seal. You know, people say, well, I was saved and I got saved again. What you're telling me is you were born again, and then you were unborn again, and then you were born again again. And then, well, I got lost the second time, so, but I got saved again. I'm born again, again, again. You're only saved once. Now, I meet people all the time. They say, well, I got saved back yonder. Well, I doubt it because you told me tonight you were 50% sure and that God should let you into heaven because you're a good person. If you were saved way back yonder, you never would have said that. You only get saved once, just as there's only one physical birthday, there's just one spiritual birthday. Not a single one is lost. It's not 143,999. And every single one that the Father gives the Son will be secured. Of this grace, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What does that mean? It means Christ died for all. He didn't die just for the elect. He didn't die for some particular group. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, world means world. He has appeared. He brings salvation to all men. But that doesn't mean all are saved. You have to receive this grace. And so the next verse says, instructing us. The salvation is available to all men, but it only instructs us who have believed. And what does it teach us? If I've had a real encounter with grace, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, that's the rapture and the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior. That's what I'm looking for today. I'm looking for Christ. I'm not looking for any Christ who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's why God saved you. You don't say, I'm saved on my way to heaven. I can live like the devil. That's the mark of a lost man. Third and finally, do you have a song in your heart? Jesus taught that your words will either condemn you or they will justify you. He said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. He said, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Listen, if you do not have a song of praise in your heart today, it means just one of two things. You either have never been saved So you can't understand these songs where you own them. Or it means you are a million miles out of fellowship with God. If you come here and you just barely mouth the words because you know you're supposed to do it to be spiritual, you're a million miles out of fellowship with God or you have never met Him at all. Music is important. It's very telling of the kind of person that you are. I've been inviting you to bring your children to the children's choirs. You ought to have them here. My wife got a sweet little note from our Grace Anna, and she was teaching children's choirs there in Texas last week, and some men, some lady, mom wrote her back and said, you know, I was listening outside of my daughter's room, and I heard my little five-year-old singing that hymn they learned. 
very telling of the kind of person you are. And if you are saved, you're headed for a future of music. <laughs> and if you don't like music, you got a problem. Now, you need to be born again, some of you. You may be religious. You may have been baptized. You may have joined the church. You may have been confirmed. But unless you are born again, unless you are made a new creature, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And you can be saved today because Jesus paid it in full. Let's bow in prayer. Maybe you're here and you want to be saved. My friend, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner. If you think you're good enough to go to heaven, you'll die and go straight to hell thinking that way. You have to change your mind that your sin is wrong and offensive, and God needs to forgive it and change it, but He can only forgive it and change it through the blood of Christ. The gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But you must come and embrace that gospel by believing what God promised, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Some of us are here and we're doubtful where we stand with God. No need to be doubtful. You can seal the decision today and forever if you will come by faith, knowing God cannot lie, that if you will call upon the name of Jesus, God would save you. Would you say today, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, some of us have already been redeemed, but in these last days, we've let the entertainments of the world crowd the Lord Jesus out of our hearts. And there's really not a song in our hearts. That's a mark of being filled with the Spirit, the Bible says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And that's just not true. And you're old Mr. or Mrs. Stoneface when we gather. You don't even open your mouth. I don't care how bad your voice is. Belt it out in obedience. But the problem for some of us is a heart issue. And God says to those who've been saved that when we're out of fellowship and we confess our sins, He is both faithful time and time again, and He's acting totally righteously because Jesus died for it to forgive you and to cleanse you. Would you bring that sin, that point of rebellion under the blood of Christ today? Now, Father, we exist to glorify you, to exalt your Son, to edify one another, and to evangelize those who are lost. May that be true of us in this brand new week that you've given us. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen.